I'm going to read one verse of scripture this morning, at least to start. It's James chapter 5, verse 12, and verse 12 is the sermon for this morning. James 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. There's more here than perhaps meets the eye. As you read it at first blush, maybe you're just thinking, okay, this is about having um, greater level of integrity in my life. Maybe you have said some white lies in the past and you're going, man, okay, I don't need to do that anymore. Maybe you're thinking this verse would address how you'll fill out your tax return next time. Maybe this is something where you're just looking at it going, okay, it's a good moral lesson in terms of of being a truth teller. But let me tell you that this verse really puts it on the line in terms of whether or not a person is spiritually alive or not. Look at the first few words of this verse. It's kind of airdropped right into James chapter 5, but it does connect with the context. Look at verse 12, the beginning, but above all my brothers. This is sort of a big deal moment for James where he's saying, look, I've said a lot to the church that's struggling and I want to emphasize a practical application that will test your faith. And that is regarding spiritual integrity. Being the real thing. Practically being the real thing. Our culture that surrounds us and influences us tells us that we can have sort of a so-so integrity. Especially the integrity that people get to know about. But secretly, we can lie a little bit. We can cheat a little bit. We can hide a little bit. We can beat the system a little bit. Our world teaches us to rationalize away impeccable integrity. It says it's not achievable, it's not realistic, and it's not worth even striving for. Now... Let me say right at the top, I am not in in any stretch of the imagination a person who's an authority on our American, uh, America's economy. I'm not. I read, you know, bits and pieces of the news and catch things just like most of us. But I know that there is a lot of discussion regarding the integrity of America based on our economic crisis. For instance, the whole issue of homes being foreclosed on and will there be more this year? There was sort of a record set uh, last year and by the end of this year, will there be more? There's predicted that there will be. Whose fault is that? Is it the banker's fault? Is it the bureaucrat's fault? Or is it the buyer's fault? Or is it all of the above? Those are the categories that I was able to come up with, even alliterating them. But, I mean, it's just a common discussion that people are wrestling with. Who really is the genesis behind where we find ourselves economically? 
You know, did the bankers sort of swindle deals or make deals with people who were drunk on the Kool-Aid of the American dream saying, oh, I'm willing to go there and, and overextend myself with a loan that I know I could not fulfill? And banks doing that because of government incentives and willingness to, to sort of draw people into an indebted situation? And round and round and round it goes, Right? Well, what I'm concerned about is what this verse is concerned with, and that is the Christian's integrity in the midst of questions like these. How do we have integrity with a world that's under that kind of scrutiny? Because if the church doesn't have impeccable integrity, where is the baseline example? And for certain we know that the world needs an example. Well, this is very clear. It says, don't Swear by heaven or earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, this is a very different mindset than what our world is saying. I actually was looking online and thinking through this issue and stumbled across a couple articles. And it was under the theme of what people are doing. It's sort of a buzz phrase now called strategic default. Has anybody heard of that? Strategic default. This is the idea, this is the idea that you're in a mortgage loan and the value of your home has decreased at such a level where it's like half of what you mortgaged it for. So now you're rationalizing strategically as a business decision not to pay your mortgage anymore. Like I'm just going to default on that because that's strategic for me. The end justifies the means. And so what about my my credit record? I'm better off by saving this money that I was contracted or obligated to put towards the mortgage company. Strategic. Uh, a, A guy's testimony in La Jolla, California, not to pick on that place. It's very beautiful, but he has beachside property, which was valued well over a million dollars, and then now it's worth $700,000, and he owes $10,000 a month. But he's saying, hey, it's just more strategic. It's just wise business sense not to pay my mortgage now. So he gives him the Ali Ali oxen free card out of that. Just, it just doesn't make sense. All kinds of flags kind of go up in my mind regarding stuff like this. Before World War II, I read that and, and we know this in our history, that a handshake agreement was more solid and more solemn than a notarized government signature document is today. Where is the integrity? And if it's, if it's nowhere, it better be here, right? Because we have the Holy Spirit of God to help us, to convict us, to help us see beyond this world that our integrity is important. Even if we could rationalize all kinds of loopholes out of doing the right thing, we see a a kingdom that's beyond here that says integrity is important. Now, I'm not talking about people who are in crisis who need to seek other solutions because they can't make their mortgage payment. Someone who's transparently backing out or transparently getting support or different options to help. I understand that. I'm talking about someone who just doesn't care. Who, someone who has no conscience regarding their integrity. That's a person who is in trouble, especially if they name the name of Christ. And especially, as this verse is going to show us, people who spiritualize doing that. 
They spiritualize their efforts and say that they're doing it in the name of God. Well, let me just sort of frame this up for us. First of all, uh, this text, verse 12, answers a question, and that is, why guard your personal integrity? Why should you do it? Why should you go for it and guard your personal integrity? The number one reason I have here is that making commitments you don't plan to keep is lying. So you guard personal integrity because you don't want to be a liar. That's why. That's, that's first of all what the text is saying. He says, above all, my brothers. That's, that's why this verse has freight or weight in it is because James is talking about the core of our being and whether or not we want to be a liar or whether we want to be a truth teller, a person who has living faith above all. Now, how does this work out in an oppressed church? Obviously, these early Christians were not living on the coastline of La Jolla, looking at beautiful water uh, off of a cliff. They were being punished and persecuted by wealthy people who were extortionists. People who were leveraging their opportunities. These were Jewish people or Roman people who were, who were trying to buy up the property that these struggling Christians were trying to maintain. And as uh, the text says in verses 1 through 6, uh, James is rebuking these wealthy, oppressive people out loud. And he's saying that they were defrauding them. Verse 4, the, the wages, the laborers, probably day laborers, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. That's crying out against you. And so they were, the, the, these poor Christians were being extorted the money that they were earning. And it was actually putting at jeopardy their, the health of their own family. So it's a tough situation. But with that tough situation, there was a real temptation. And the real temptation was to be in a situation where you're, you're being extorted, you're trying to protect your, your income, you're trying to protect your property, and suddenly you're tempted to sort of try to beat the system by making a contract with a, a collector and to ward them off with a contract by saying, listen, you know, based upon my integrity before God as a Christian, you know, if someone would be so bold as to blaspheme the Lord, they know they're not going to keep their end of the deal. They know they can't pay the rich person off, but they're saying, based on my integrity as a Christian or based on the name of the Lord, I will pay you. And James is saying, don't go there and don't do that if you don't mean it. And don't swear by something lesser than that. Look at the text again. Don't swear by heaven or by earth. Don't do that. Don't make that kind of contract, either verbally or a physical contract. Don't swear by where God lives and don't swear by what God created. Don't even go there. Don't try to candy coat this thing. Because people were afraid to make those kinds of, you know, God commitments out loud in the Jewish culture because they knew that was blasphemy. They, they knew of Leviticus chapter 19, which talks about not swearing in the name of the Lord. They understood that that was blasphemy. And so they would do it in other ways. Now, let me be quick to say this. It's not wrong to take an oath in general, or to be contracted for an obligation. It's wrong to say one thing and not mean it, though. 
It's wrong to sign on the dotted line and not follow through. But some people will use this verse and say, listen, I can't, you know, raise my right hand in a court of law and put my hand on the Bible and say, I will tell the truth. And I promise to do that. People will say, well, this verse prohibits that. And that's not what this is talking about. They will also say, use verse 12 to say, look, this is talking about how you're not allowed to cuss or, or use coarse jesting. Well, uh, James 3, 9 already covered that, where he indicts people who curse people made in the likeness of God. So he's already covered that. Ephesians 4 talks about not, not allowing coarse jesting. So that is out of bounds, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about integrity. God, as you'll remember, in the Abrahamic covenant, took an oath with himself. If you look over at Hebrews chapter 6... Just a few pages back, it talks about how he made a covenant with himself. And why did he do that? Verse 13. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, promising to bless and multiply the nations of the earth in faith. And he was appealing to his unchangeable character. So it's not wrong to make an oath like that. It's wrong not to mean it. Paul said it again and again. God is witness regarding my integrity. The Lord knows that I have integrity in the gospel. So he made those kinds of oath statements. What's in question here is integrity. Integrity. Leviticus 19.12, that's where I was looking before. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am Lord. That's what James is talking about. He looked back at Leviticus 19 a lot when he wrote this book of the Bible. And he's saying, listen, don't swear by my name falsely. That's what Moses wrote there and that's what is being applied here. It's a sin of spirit. Of, uh, of speech. It's a sin of the tongue, no doubt, connecting back to James 3. But it's deeper than just word sinning. It's lying. It's breaking the third commandment, Exodus chapter 19. It's bearing false witness. And it's very subtle when you're talking about business negotiations, isn't it? It really is. I uh, remember one time uh, contracting, being in a contract with a guy where he was going to build our family a home and we were excited about that, and it was sort of a six-month contract for him to do that. And there were some reasons why things were kind of slowly moving along. But as we reached the deadline, it was just so apparently clear that the contract in his mind meant absolutely nothing. And that, that was a problem for me. It's not wrong, I, per se, to say, let's renegotiate the contract. Let's explain it. Let's talk about it. And, and I feel bad about not being able to meet that obligation. But when the person just, it, it just meant nothing to me, it sort of put his business integrity in jeopardy in my mind. Now, he was a good man and he ultimately fulfilled his obligation and he knew what he was doing. But it was just, it was weird to me to be in a contract agreement and for it to mean nothing in terms of a real, solid, notarized deadline. Now, he can do that, but listen, the church can't. We cannot do that. Our yes has to be a transparent yes from what we say all the way to our soul. People need to see that that yes means something. It's real. And that is your witness before God to the watching world. And let me just steal some of my thunder. Your kids. Your kids are integrity bloodhounds. You know that? Young and old, we're watching and, and we're being watched. 
And it matters. It matters, you know, if you've ever sort of been on these toll roads where you've got to throw the money in. You know, if you miss the toll and it falls into the street and you go, well, I'm just going to go, you know, move on, whatever. Uh, it matters. Kids are watching all of those subtle little decisions that you make regarding your yes being yes and your no being no matter. And you cannot quantify the value of a person's soul as they watch these integrity decisions, right? You can't say, well, it's worth it. It's never worth it. It's always right to make things right. And James is concerned that church members are concerned with this issue. He's, he, it's, it's very disconcerting if you're just sort of ignoring this kind of call for spiritual integrity. Well, this church, it was, uh, it was making some verbal commitments that they didn't plan to keep to ward off creditors, to ward off collectors to try to buy some time, to try to scam through the system, and even doing it by swearing categorically in the name of God, even if they weren't using the name of God. Look, Jesus was all over this too. Turn in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 5. He, he dealt with this in the Sermon on the Mount, and I did perhaps a year and a half ago. Matthew chapter 5, oaths, verse 33, says you shall not... Swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus is saying that's what tradition says. Says you've heard that it said, don't swear falsely, but follow through. But he, Jesus ratchets it, ratchets it all the way to the heart saying, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, look, he's not condemning oaths altogether. He's just saying, don't try to spiritualize your oath to try to get your way by using religion. If you're swearing by a temple, that is a very serious thing. That's where the presence of God is. If you're swearing by earth, that's God's footstool. You better be careful because you're not just beating the system. You're having a bad reputation before a watching world and before a watching God. Because he, Jesus is condemning falsehood and faking it and saying, I'm going to do it when you know in your heart you're really not. He condemned the Pharisees for doing this. If you look at Matthew 23... He calls them blind fools in verse 17. He's talking about not swearing oaths. He says, verse 20, So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You know what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you're going there, then I'm going to say that you're all the way there. You're totally accountable to God. I was thinking about this idea and I was thinking, how often do I rationalize something away? And how precise will it be one day when I stand before the throne of God? How precisely will I be audited for my own heart? You say, yeah, but we're under no condemnation. That's fine. But Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 3 strike some fear in my heart, at least in terms of a sense of loss that I'll have before my God, where I will be held account to account for everything that I said, every commitment that I made that I broke. 
right? That's what we're talking about here. And by the grace of the gospel, we climb up levels in our integrity by God's grace. And it takes some hard preaching sometimes to get through the crust of our hearts, right? We've got to sort of take it at face value and say, listen, Lord, I need to be this kind of transparent, honest businessman, transparent, honest parent, transparent, honest Christian, transparent, honest neighbor with my community. Because this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of being the real deal. The real thing. Breaking a contract, it, it breaks our witness. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 requires this kind of integrity of an elder. It says you must be well thought of by outsiders. That's what we're talking about. That he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. What's disgrace look like? Well, well how, how much grace do you give the devil for what he did? For his lack of integrity. For him trying to trump the throne of God. That's the same snare a leader can fall into when integrity is broken with outsiders. It's disgraceful. And it brings shame on the name of Christ. And it brings shame on the opportunity with our testimony. Now you say, I've already done that. I've been a disgrace. Well, go make it right. You say, I don't want to do that. Well, that's evangelism. You say, I don't know how to witness. Just go make something right and say, Christ convicted you to do it. Guess what? You're evangelizing. Yeah, but I didn't learn that in a class. Just go do it and try it. You're evangelizing. Nobody makes things right. Nobody eats it. Nobody says, please forgive me. I want to be transparent about how I just told a lie. I remember the last time that I remember lying. It was when I had become a Christian and I had gone to a Christian college and I told the students this at Grace Christian School this week and it's just a, a it's a standout thought in my mind that I, I was hanging out with some guys in college at Christian College and they were mediocre Christians and we were fine. I mean we were sort of inbounds spiritually but we weren't hot for God and so you know we kind of came in late for curfew which was just a rule, but I was outside the dorm instead of inside the dorm. And if you're not inside the dorm at 11, then you're outside the dorm and you're delinquent and, you know, you got to fess up. Well, it's 11.01 or 2 or 3 or something. And I just sort of blow through the door. My RA says, were you in or outside the door at 11? I said, I was inside the door. And I went, I was outside the door. I mean, I am delinquent. I just lied to you. And I just made it right immediately. It was like the Spirit of God, like took over my mouth in that moment where I wanted to lie and, and sort of scam the system. And you can say, well, that, that rule is superficial and, you know, that's just extra biblical and what are they doing? And, they, you know, God knows my heart and I, in my heart I was inside the dorm, but I was really, you know, <laughs> right? That's what we're talking about. And yes, I mean, there are, there are legalistic standards and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I just sort of made that right. You make that stuff right, and it propels you into ministry and opportunities because nobody does that stuff. 
All right, well, number one, you, you don't want to be this kind of liar. Let me give you just a couple examples of some oaths that were made. And I, I, I want to cite these examples because these are Old Testament and a New Testament example um, that, that sort of show the motivation behind making a rash oath doing something in passion, doing something where you're not being patient, you're not being like Job, remember last week, where he's the enduring, suffering servant who endures through pain. Uh, we're so often, we're pragmatists. We just, we, the end justifies the means. I've got to go for it. I've got to do something to get it done, right? So often people do that. And I want to cite a couple Old Testament examples. Before I do, I don't want to miss this. What's the number one pragmatic oath that people are making in our country all around us and in the church as well? I think it's where people overextend themselves into credit card debt. That's an oath. That's a commitment. When you sign up for a credit card, you know what you're doing? You're not just getting a free plastic way to get what you want, what you can't afford. What you're doing is you're in contract to be obligated to pay your payment and pay down your card on time. I don't mind for people carrying debt. I don't, I'm not against debt biblically per se. I'm against delinquent debt. That's what the Proverbs condemns and goes against. We're not supposed to obligate the system to um, make a way for us to carry debt that we cannot pay for. If you're in that situation, you have to dig your way out and you should appeal for counselors and help to do that through transparent um, pleas for help. But, I mean, our, our, our country is just locked up in debt. $15,700. That's the average debt that people are carrying on credit cards. 609 million credit cards floating around our country. Did you catch that? Six. 109 million at 15% APR, averaging three per credit card holder, three cards per holder. And today's U.S. revolving debt, according to a government survey for credit cards, is, guess this, $793 billion. I mean, this is society-wide where people are saying... And rationalizing, look, I need that. That want is a need. And even if I can't necessarily get there from here and how I'm going to pay for it, I'm still going to go for it. That's what James is saying is wrong. You've got to be transparent with the contracts that you make and be able to go after your obligations. All right, now let's shift gears to this pragmatism and a couple Old Testament um, examples. One, let's look at Jephthah's rash oath that he made in Judges. Uh, Jephthah is the ninth judge. This is uh, Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11, a very disconcerting uh, story that many of you have heard. But I just want to zero in on Jephthah's heart after he made this thing. He was considered a mighty warrior. And as the ninth judge, he probably was a really, um, you know, sort of known warrior who could haul the mail in terms of bringing victory. And they needed victories because they were in Canaan, but they were taking over pagan territory and taking on pagan societies as warriors. This man, verse 1, was born to a prostitute. So Gilead, his father, um, was the father of Jephthah, but the father had his wife and other sons. And so the wife and the sons basically pushed Jephthah out of the family. But then when the Ammonites 
were calling for war, they said, oh, we got to get Jephthah back in because he, you know, he's the warrior. He's going to do the deed for us. And so the son sort of argue him back in and say, look, the reason we're asking you back in is because you're a mighty warrior. And somehow Jephthah said, okay, all right, I am that mighty warrior. I'm back in the program. I'm in the game. But I think, and it says that he went in verse three to the land of Tob. I think Jephthah brought some baggage back into the fight because of this vow that he made that was a pagan vow that put his daughter's life in jeopardy. Anyway, so as the text goes, the Ammonites are are the people that uh, the Israelites need to take on and defeat. The book of Judges, it spans 350 years, and so this is at the 300th year mark since Joshua had conquested and brought the children of Israel into the land across the Jordan River. So they've kind of moved around in territories and taken over property, and so... Jephthah sends a peace agreement to the king of the Ammonites. The king of the Ammonites is saying, why are you doing this to us? Uh, You're taking over our land. And Jephthah makes a pretty clear case that, look, 300 years ago when Joshua stormed in here, you weren't there. It was a different group. It was a different tribe. And we had already acquired that land and now we're coming back around to it. And so we really are going to make war with you for this, justifiably so. You didn't let us pass, and so you need to let us now pass through and acquire this property. Now, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah, here it is. You got verse 29 where it says, The Spirit of the Lord's on Jephthah, and then he makes a vow that I would say is a rash vow. It's not of God. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. What stands out to me is this kind of sort of pagan pragmatism was done in the name of the Lord. It's the idea that he's saying, look, you know, God will, if, if he blesses me, then I'm going to do whatever comes out, uh, whatever comes out the door, I'm going to kill for God. And that actually is breaking the Old Testament law that says that you cannot do that. In Deuteronomy, you, you can't offer people up to the Lord as a sacrifice. That's against God. And as you know, as the story goes, the Lord did give the Ammonites into Uh, His hand, verse 32, and then 34 says, Jephthah came home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and dances. She was his only child besides her. her. He had neither son nor daughter, and so he tore his clothes. He was in anguish, saying that his daughter had brought him very low, verse 35. And his daughter actually being... Noble is saying, listen, the Lord has delivered you and, and has given the Ammonites into your hands. And so she was willing to go through with it. She went away for several months crying over her virginity. Why? Because the, the lineage, the name of Jephthah would not be passed on through her. And ultimately, I take this passage to be, you know, the clear um, idea that she was sacrificed because of his rash vow. 
Now, let's go to another um, example, and that is in Daniel. This is another story that, this is a story that perhaps many of you have heard. Maybe you haven't heard of uh, Jephthah's vow, but you've heard of this. You've heard of where King Darius was sort of manipulated by the advisors and satraps into setting Daniel up to not go against his conscience. I mean, these satraps, these people that in, you know, in the land of the Chaldees, in the Babylonian captivity, they saw that Daniel was this sort of top guy, one of three presidents, and he was the top three of the three presidents in leadership because he had interpreted dreams and visions from Nebuchadnezzar. He had interpreted um, the handwriting on the wall from Belshazzar, right? In, in Daniel chapter 5. And so he was elevated. And part of that interpretation was that the kingdom was going to split. And the new Mede king or ruler or emperor was Darius. And so Darius saw all of this and saw Daniel's character and elevated him at this level. And the satraps, the advisors got jealous of him. And so what they did is they said, look, Daniel's character is impeccable, and so all we can do is set him up to where we know Daniel won't go against his conscience and stop praying. And so we'll set a law up with Darius that if anyone prays to any other person than Darius for 30 days, then they need to be thrown into the lion's den. And that's exactly what Daniel did, verse 10 of chapter 6. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed... He went to his house. He knew. Look at the the courage here. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Well, the satraps caught him. They turned him in and then they said to the king, you've got to follow through on this, um, this signed document, this oath. And then look at verse 14. It says, Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. You ever been there? You ever been in a commitment, a rash commitment, something you were duped into doing, you allowed your heart to go there, and then you felt so bad about what you had committed to do that you're just soul distressed over it. You're losing sleep over this. And Darius did the right thing. He appealed to God's hand in verse 16. He says, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. He was locked into that oath. It was rash and it was pragmatic and it was pride driven. Let me show you one more in the New Testament. This is Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Remember the story of John the Baptist when he was captured by King Herod. King Herod Antipas, he had John the Baptist. And he perhaps was sort of controlling John the Baptist's mouth because John was preaching against him. He was married to Herodias and Herodias was Herod's sister-in-law. It says here in the text that his brother, this was his brother's wife, Philip's wife, and he had married her. In verse 18, John the Baptist was saying, it's not lawful for you you to have your brother's wife. Well, Herod had a conscience about this. He actually didn't want to uh, persecute John beyond just prison. And so 
he knew he was a righteous and holy man. But verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted him put to death. And so what happened? There was a party that was thrown. There were some military commanders that were there. It was a a birthday banquet and Herodias' daughter comes in and she dances before these men and pleases Herod the king. And this is where Herod's pride gets juiced up. This is where he's going to make a rash vow. He's going to make an oath without thinking about the consequences. And he said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Verse 23. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. So she goes and talks to her mom, Herodias. And Herodias says, give me the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25. And she came in immediately with haste. And the king asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now look at verse 26. This is the sorrow that comes with a pragmatic, pride-driven, passion-driven, foolish-driven oath. A commitment that, that should never have been made. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths, And his guests, this is where pride is feeding this. Because of his guests were there, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. So why don't, why don't we want to, why do we want to protect our personal integrity? Well, number one, we don't want to be a liar. We want to be the real thing. And it's, it's not that, Protecting integrity makes you the real thing. It just reveals that you are the real thing. That's how the Bible cautions us to examine our hearts, to vindicate that we're the real thing, to show that we're real because we're, we're not making rash, pride-driven, pragmatic vows that we know we're not going to keep. Our yes is yes and our no is no. Like Luther said, here I, here I stand, I can do no other. I can't break my commitments. No matter what, they put Luther of the Diet of Worms, you know, on the stand and said, you need to burn your books, you need to disavow your biblical books. And, and Luther said, I'm standing on biblical conviction and principle. Here I stand. Do your worst. And the Lord honored that, that kind of transparency. Well, here's the next um, reason that we should strive for personal integrity. Making commitments you don't plan to keep contradicts living faith. If you want to contradict your conscience, if you want to contradict what the Spirit of God is doing in your life, then be a covenant breaker. Look at verse 12 again. It says, let your your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is a severe warning at the end of this verse. This is James saying, listen... If you're this kind of person, if you're sort of a person that's taking the Lord's name in vain, using religious symbols or ceremony to sort of grease the skids for some sort of fake commitment or fake covenant, fake oath, something you know you're not going to keep, if that's what you're all about and you're not repentant about that, if you don't have a conscience about that whatsoever then guess what? You could be slipping towards condemnation or judgment. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I say this often. Once the Lord saves you, he does a good job. No one can snatch you from the Father's hand. You're not losing your salvation. 
But as you examine yourself, if you're hard-hearted and unrepentant and you have an unrepentant pattern of being a liar, then you could be faking yourself out, headed right to judgment under the Lord's hand. It's what Paul called making shipwreck of your faith. You think that you're the real thing. You think you're acting in faith. And then you find out that you're really shipwrecked. It's a severe warning. This is why it ratchets up at the beginning of verse 12. This is why he says, above all. Let's just examine your heart for a minute. Above all. Are you a person who perseveres like Job? Are you a person who's going to pray when it gets tough as we're going to look at verses 13 and following? Or are you a person who breaks your commitment, who has no credibility at all? Condemnation, that word is used in the New Testament only of unbelievers under judgment. In contrast to believers, James 2.13, if you look over there, for judgment, same word, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Are you without mercy for your whole life? Are you merciless? Are you someone who gives no mercy to people? Then you really shouldn't revel in your assurance of salvation. It's empty. If you're you're not a mercy giver, merciful people, at some level as a Christian, you're going to have compassion for people. You're going to have some level of mercy because the Lord works that in a heart that's alive. But if you're a person who rationalizes mercy away, then you're under judgment. If you're a person who rationalizes lying away, then you're under judgment. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. it makes a distinction between a word that is for believers who are disciplined and unbelievers who are condemned. That's that same word. Pragmatic blasphemers, they're headed for judgment. Revelation 21, 8 talks about hell. Listen to the list here. Faithless, detestable, As for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will enter it, enter heaven. Nothing unclean will go there. It's holy, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Revelation twenty two fifteen. outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, let me be quick to say this. Paul was a Christian killer. He was a zealot, dragged people into court, imprisoned them before he was saved. David committed immorality, committed murder. A lot of people have been bound up in the occult, people who have bound up in all kinds of patterns, a lot of people before they came to Christ who lied perpetually, but will enter into the kingdom of heaven because of the gospel. And the key for establishing a baseline for Christian integrity, for personal integrity, is the gospel. It's saying, listen, I've blown it, I've messed up, I've done these things, and I want the pattern of lying to break And I'm fully in for God because of the gospel. There's grace. There is grace. And it's not the perfection of your life. It's not that you've been perfect all along the way. And it's it's not that you and your heart, you're probably sitting on something where you're going, man, I I wonder whether or not I need to make restitution with that. I I can't even make that right anymore. I mean, that's never going to go away. But, But there's grace 
And that's where a person who's soft in their heart looks at a verse like James 5.12 and says, listen, my yes is yes and my no is no because of grace alone in the gospel. And I'm going to start now, today. That's what this verse drives us to do. Let's look at a few applications. Number one, what is lost when you lack integrity? Well, your witness is lost. And I already talked about your family, neighbors, coworkers. And, And secondly... It has a direct bearing on your relationship with God. You don't want your relation, your fellowship with the Lord to be strained. And listen, this is the big one. If, if you're not living in integrity, like integrity with your wife, integrity with your kids, if you're not being honest, your conscience is wounded and something is, is inhibited in your relationship and your confidence with the Lord. And then last, and this might be confusing, it jeopardizes your standing with God. What I mean by that is in terms of your assurance of salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But if you're living a lie, you have no assurance of salvation. You might be saved, but your confidence isn't there. And you might be headed to judgment because you've duped yourself into believing that you're the real thing, but you're living an unrepentant lie. Now, on the other hand, what is gained when you have integrity by the gospel? Personal integrity energizes your witness well, you'll, you'll be willing to preach to your kids and others. And then secondly, it fuels your relationship with God. Personal joy, happiness, holiness, energy, resolve that you're the real thing. And it affirms that you are the real thing. Isn't this what you want? It's the power of Christian integrity that comes by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this verse. It's a... It's a one-verse message, but what a message it is for our own personal lives and for the integrity of our country. I pray that we would be that example and baseline example for people as they look on uh, to find, is there anyone who's honest anymore? And it better be found in the church. We thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.